They say patience is a virtue, but I can wait as long as you do for a change. Call me insane, but that's my end. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Untelevised, the podcast. We've reached episode 14, so welcome. If you're new here, my name is Faseo, and I'm one of your hosts, and my co-host is Mona. Hi, Mona. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Faseo. <laughs> and on this podcast, we explore possibilities for social change, and we do that by exploring what society currently looks like, um, looking at what we might want it to look like, and what part we might all play in changing it. And we do that in a couple of ways. We break down complex theories and concepts um, and political terms. And we also talk to people that in their everyday lives are fighting for change in some way. Last episode, we focused on democracy as an overarching concept for how society might be run and a feature of most political societies. But in that discussion, we sort of uncovered and discovered and discussed the fact that democracy can be applied to a lot of different situations. And one of those situations is the workplace. So this week, we thought we would look at how democracy might be applied to the workplace. Yeah, I think we've kind of found that people have said to us that actually getting the practical examples are really, really useful. And after we dug into socialism, for example, we then met with a community that lived in these quite non-capitalist ways. And we had messages going, oh, it's really interesting to see it in practice. And I think with something as big as democracy again, um, to just understand, like, fine, like, what are the barriers to really being democratic? You know, what are the human behaviours that might get in the way of that? What are the practical barriers that might get in the way of that? And and so on. And so actually, as you said, like, there's the whole infrastructure of society, um, which we need to govern and run, but we also literally need to run like small businesses and community groups and, you know, like charities and like housing structures and, and all of these places could have conflict, could have hierarchy. And so people are always trying to kind of find ways around that. Yeah. And I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but as both of us are sort of at the quote unquote top of businesses this is an interesting episode for us to explore like maybe some of the ways we're working as you know directors of companies and some of the ways we might apply some of these principles to our work or might already be applying them to our work um so yeah I'm I'm interested to delve into our guests mindsets and see where it might align with mine or where it might differ slightly (laughs) It's it's very grand. I feel like I've been promoted or something today. Yes, running companies. Um, um, That's why we're so tired all the time. Um, But yeah, exactly. No, of course, of course, like you are constantly faced with this, I think, on a daily basis. And even if you are literally, I don't know, like in my case, maybe there's about five members of the team or five staff, but you still come up against this all the time. You know, how are decisions made and what's fair and what's right and... Um, we're always we you know we always talk about how you're so um, groomed and and kind of used to the capitalist system around you mm-hmm. that no matter how much you want to work differently you realize the ways that it's seeped into you without you mm-hmm. even realizing it so there's a lot about changing mindset as well as just actually changing infrastructure but I think our guests yeah. definitely go into this as well today so I won't dwell on that too long maybe yeah. we need to define some some key terms Let's jump into our learn section. 
Okay, so um, in order to define some key terms within democratic workplaces, um, I guess it's worth us just briefly looking at what maybe the more traditional or what we, I guess, for the sake of this episode, non-democratic workplaces might actually look like and therefore why some of the models we're going to explore today might stand out. So in the most traditional idea of business, and you can listen to our capitalist and socialist episodes, actually, for some reference on this and our workers' rights episodes, actually, um, the people that run the business, own the business, set up the business or at the top of the business, they make the profits. They decide what they do with those profits, whether they buy themselves Jaguars or, you know, donate to charity or whatever. It's kind of up to them. They make the decisions and there is hierarchy, literally meaning that some people are above others, both financially and in decision making structures. So, you know, a person who's like in the warehouse at Amazon, it doesn't matter that Amazon made more money than they've ever made last year. They will never see an extra penny of that. They will still get their, let's hope at the very least, minimum wage, um, if that, you know, for, for the work that they've done. And they don't get to say, oh, you know, could we now run the company differently? Or could, you know, I've noticed that during the year of COVID, we really struggled with this, this extra workload in the warehouse, I'd like to put forward a petition for us to change it, that doesn't happen. And then, of course, on the complete other end of the scale. If you listen to our socialism episode, um, you'll hear that, you know, um, our guest on that episode said there, there would literally be no distinction between like classes in society. You know, it wouldn't just be about slightly reducing differences between ruling classes, working classes, upper classes, lower classes. There would be full equality and everyone in a society would get the same, benefit the same and get the things they need. So that's the scale that we're dealing with. And so I guess the terms you're going to hear today are sort of, you know, they will be more or less uh, revolutionary, I guess, depending on where on that scale you're coming from and what is a norm to you. Um, and say, I remember you, you you mentioned like some really like crazy statistic about yeah. the, the actual disparity within the more like in the corporate sector as we know it. Between. Yeah, yeah. So in our research for this episode, we found a study by the High Pay Centre Think Tank, and they found that by the time the median UK CEO of a top 100 company has worked for their first 34 hours in a year, they would have earned more than the median annual wage for a full-time UK worker. So to put that in more simple terms, basically, the top CEOs in this country, in the UK, earn more in a week than the average person does in a whole year. And to give even more context to those stats, it was found that over the year, so over 365 days, a top CEO will earn about 120 times that of a UK worker, with the average CEO's pay in the UK equaling about £3.6 million and the average UK worker's earnings equaling about £31,000. And that's according to the most recent figures by the Office for National Statistics. So at the most extreme end of these statistics, the highest paid CEO in the UK is Tim Steiner, and he's from Ocado Group. In 2019, Tim Steiner earned £58.7 million in total. And that figure was 2,600 times more than his median employee, according to the company's 2019 annual report. Um, so yeah, those are just some sobering figures to help put all of these conversations that we're about to have into context. And again, a median salary is a reflection of the average salary or the middle number salary 
in any workplace or any society. So the the two um, kind of democratic workplace models that we're going to explore um, today um, are employee-owned businesses and cooperatives. So an employee-owned business, um, kind of drawing from what um, Fazeo just said, is um, a business where employees have a significant and meaningful stake in the business. So this means that they will both have a financial stake in the business, meaning they will own shares, for example, or get some sort of um, distribution of the profits beyond just the salary or the wage that they earn for their hourly work. Um, And then they will also have a say um, in kind of maybe how the business is run, which is known as employee engagement. So this could be anything from giving all employees maybe a certain level of voice or vote in like management meetings or um, giving them like greater retirement security or um, kind of encouraging them maybe to come up with like innovative micro projects in the business or, you know, sort of being basically more involved and also therefore drawing more from the business. So um there's, there is still disparity in an employee-owned business. So you will still have like hierarchies, you will still have managers, you will still have people on a lower wage. Um, there will probably be a much smaller gap between the highest and the lowest. Um, and, empl- and employees will have that little bit more say and empowerment, but it will not be the complete, it's not the same thing as literally... Um, I don't know, a socialist society where everybody is contributing, you know, equally and receiving equally from from their from their labor. The employee owned business that we are speaking to today are Riverfood, who are an organic food delivery company. Their model um, is a model where the business is managed via a trust um, and the value of the business sits in a trust as opposed to in shares. So there are two different types of business um, employee owned businesses. So the full value of their business, uh, meaning whatever it would sell for on the market, is held in a trust. And then profits are still kind of measured and counted for every year. Um, And at the moment, um, like 10% of the profit that's then made at the end of the year is shared completely equally across all owners, all members of the business, regardless of whether they are a farmer or whether they're the CEO. Last year, when Riverford made a lot more profit because of COVID delivering food, they increased that to 15% of the profit got split and they want to work up to 20%. The rest of the profits they make still don't go into the pockets of like the the owners you know well the CEOs or whatever because everybody's an owner of the company um it gets reinvested back into the company to sort of improve the company so that might even be by you know trying to move towards having electric vans or compostable packaging and and so on um at riverford um the gap is that the people earning the highest wage in the company are would will earn no more than nine times at the moment their lowest uh, um, paid workers, and essentially anybody who works for Riverford from the moment they become an employee are a co-owner. So they immediately kind of get their share, and they immediately start getting that split of the 
annual breakdown of profits when they start working for Riverford. Yeah, and so as Mona's mentioned, there's sort of a scale. And um, so you've got sort of quote-unquote traditional business, you've got um, employee-owned business like Mona's just explained, and then on the other side, you might have something like a co-op. So we covered co-ops as a general principle a little bit in our ethical consumer episode. So do have a listen to that if you haven't already. But basically, a cooperative is an organisation that exists to serve its members, whether they're the customers, the workers, or the local community. What makes a co-op unique is that these members are also the owners um, and they all have an equal say in what the cooperative does. So if we're to apply this to business, a workers' cooperative is a type of business that is owned and managed by the people who work in it. So like we discussed in our democracy episode, this might look different according to what form of democracy the organisation has decided to take. Um, So it might be a direct democracy where every worker owner participates in decision making in a democratic fashion and each person has one vote and every time a decision is being made they cast that vote or it may be a more indirect democracy or representational democracy where uh, management is elected by every worker owner and that management or committee or board uh, makes the decisions on behalf of the owners that have elected them. So the first successful cooperative organisation was the consumer-owned Watchdale Society of Equitable Pioneers, which was established in England in 1844. And the Watchdale Pioneers um, established something called the Watchdale Principles, and that's the basis on which they ran their cooperative. And it's now become the basis on which all modern cooperatives um, run. Uh, And to get a better understanding of this, uh, we spoke to someone who I'm sure will be able to articulate it better than I could, We spoke to Johnny Forbes, who works for Cooperatives UK, and he's going to give us some extra background on the Watchdale principles, how co-ops came about and what these principles stand for and look like. It was a group of 28 people who decided to set up their own food store, essentially selling their own produce that they couldn't otherwise afford. And not only not afford, produce at the time was, was regularly kind of diluted or watered down so you'd get flour but it would be full of chalk and rubbish like this so they started buying collectively and then selling without that great markup which allowed people to um to afford these products and have a decent quality of food and everything else after they'd set up within 10 years then there was over a thousand cooperative societies in the uk they're based on the watchdale principles from those watchdale pioneers um they're voluntary and open membership for the society or for the group so it's always You can't force people to be in and people have to volunteer, but it's open to anyone to apply. Democratic member controllers in that everybody makes the decisions about the cooperative um, and that's how any key decisions are made. Member economic participation generally just means that people are paid for their work within it, essentially, Um, although that massively varies across the scale and the type of cooperative that it is. Quite often you'll find in workers' cops that people give their time voluntarily to begin with, become a member, and then they're given an amount of time. But as soon as they're kind of contracted or have a set amount of work to do, they'll be paid to do that. Um, Autonomy and independence being an absolute key um, factor within cooperatives is that we're not managed in any way by an external group. We manage our own business, in a sense, obviously within line with any regulations and everything that exists outside of us, but we have to, but we still maintain our autonomy. Education, training and info, again, being a key principle of co-ops that you share information and that links directly into the next point, which is cooperation among co-ops, which is to say you support each other amongst the cooperative network. 
And then finally, concern for community, which obviously can be kind of uh, interpreted in multiple ways, but it's just to say you're you're aware and you're not absolutely there to kind of exploit. You 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 aim to give something back or at least be fair in that way. Now, a company called Suma is the largest workers' co-op in the UK and it's also the largest equal pay cooperative in Europe. And I was lucky enough to be talking to them this week. Um, so how Suma works is quite different from what I'm imagining most of us have ever come across or heard of or understand a business to operate. Um, Suma doesn't actually have a CEO. So in contrast to um, Mona's example of Riverford that has a CEO that earns nine times the lowest earning employee all of Suma's over 200 employees or members, as they prefer to call them, earn exactly the same wage. At the moment, I believe that's £15.92 an hour, which equates to just over £33,000 a year for the average worker who might work a 35 hour week, five days a week, plus any bonuses and shares that they might have in any particular year. The only way you can earn a little bit more would be if you were to do a few more hours, if you were to work overtime. Um, So Suma was established in 1977, and it now resides in a market town in West Yorkshire. And the interesting thing about that is that the salary that Suma has set ensures that all of its employees could buy a home and have what they call a decent car, a good family life and a nice holiday. So it's to ensure sort of a standard quality of life for the employees. Um, And you might think, oh, is this completely altruistic? How does this work? Is this a profitable business? It is. It's a profitable business that turns over tens of millions of pounds every year and exports thousands of vegetarian products to over 40 countries. So it very much does sit within the profitable business model, but it's just doing things really, really differently. So yeah, we were really excited to sort of explore this concept as something very different from what we're used to hearing um, and to speak to the two different businesses about how they've implemented democracy, what implications that actually has for day-to-day life and why they think their way of doing things is the right way. This week, I got to speak to two people from Riverford, both the founder of the company and also the editor of their online magazine, and who, as we explained earlier, are both co-owners of this business because that's how their model works. So Guy Singh Watson um, has over the last 30 years taken Riverford from sort of literally kind of one man in a wheelbarrow delivering homegrown organic veg to friends to this national veg box scheme, which now has reached a point of delivering um, to around 80,000 customers a week. He converted the business to employee ownership model in 2018. Um, So it is more recent after what he explains as being around 10 years of research into the best way to move the business along and and how to convert it based on the values that he had, while still keeping it as a profitable and competitive business. Nina's background is as a journalist specialising in food sustainability, supply chains and ethical business. And she joined Riverford shortly after it had become an employee ownership scheme and so they both speak about it from different like perspectives of having seen it right from the start to the more recent iteration it's just something about the sort of culture that we've created i think particularly in boardrooms you know is is is, you know is is it's just kind of shameful really and, and and such a waste of our talents as as human beings. So I wanted a model that was, you know, that was fairer, 
Mm-hmm. But also, you know, fairer in that it gave more back to those particularly, you know, lower down the salary scale. But also it was able to get more out of them. I mean, I've, you know, I spent 30 years managing people pretty badly on the whole and, and, and just becoming really sort of frustrated by the need for management, actually. I mean, I think so often the role of management is, is to know when to get out of the way and to get out of the way and, and you know, and give people as much autonomy um, over their daily working lives as, as possible. And that has, it's always been my sort of philosophy, I suppose, but I just didn't know how to implement it. I didn't know how to turn it into reality. And, and you know, what's been brilliant about employee ownership is getting a team of people around us who, you know, who I have had to take the time to um, actually crystallize, you know, what it is that I want business to achieve and to communicate that with them at the end of the day it doesn't matter who owns it you know actually i view ownership in many ways as a problem to be got rid of you know i mean because it, it, you know it's not it's who controls it and who determines its success you know which too often is the people who own it but they are often the least qualified to make those decisions i mean there there is a problem of of, of shareholder you know, ownership where the shareholders are very distant from whatever's going on so that, you know, they'll have, you know, next to no, well, they're virtually legally obliged to, the, the, the directors of the business are virtually legally obliged to act in the commercial interest of the shareholders. I mean, until very recently, that was corporate law. Uh, and, uh, you know, to do anything else, to make decisions that might have an environmental or a social or an employee's interest in them was, you know, by certain hardline capitalists viewed as being, you know, immoral, actually. I mean, that, you know, it, it's a bizarre, you know, we created these structures that, that, you know, as if they're, you know, as if they're kind of Newton's fourth or fifth law. I can't remember how many, mm-hmm. but anyway, that the, um, you know, as if there is something kind of written in nature about them, they're a complete construct, you know, and they're a construct built on really, you know, shaky foundations. We discovered in both our capitalism episode, our socialism episode, that actually one of the real issues for people is simply the imagination to see things differently and to understand how it might look in practice. So if you say to people in a very just theoretical way, wouldn't it be nice if society was kinder, fairer, more equal? Everybody goes, yeah, 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 that, that's lovely. And then if they can't see it, that's kind of where it stops. And so, you know, here we have some practical examples that you're saying are not even particularly bonkers that, you know, they haven't kind of fallen from the from the moon or whatever. They're quite achievable and they could happen and you've spent some time trying to make them happen. So in the kind of day-to-day at Riverford, how, how does this shared or democratic kind of practice work? Like, is it at every level of decision-making? Is it, you know, monthly votes? Like, what might it feel like when you're there? The way I see it is it's still run in a traditional way in the sense that, you know, the board and, and our senior directors, they sort of run run the business and, and it's fairly traditional like that. So the co-owner um, role in day-to-day life as a co-owner comes um, kind of on a consultative basis, really. So we have a co-owner council, which is our primary channel as co-owners to raise issues and be consulted on important issues. So sort of separate to the, the financial running of the business and the commercial success, the responsibility of that still lies with directors. And, and I think that was so, you know, that, you know, 
kind of understanding that they're the ones who know how to do it, but also with the, the caveat that the co-owners, if they see something they don't like, they have this very kind of direct channel to raise an issue or, you know, have that debate and um, influence like that without kind of affecting day-to-day operations. Um, so they're kind of separate in that way. But yeah, it, 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 the council has been pretty, it, it's pretty amazing really to see it in action. So each area of the business is, is kind of named as a, a constituency and each area um, elects a councillor who then goes to a weekly council meeting or fortnightly um depending on what else is going on and they have an agenda, they've got an external chair, it's very well moderated and, and throughout the year they, you know, they can talk about anything really. I mean, our, our financial accounts, what, you know, what, what our stance is going to be on, on kind of things like Extinction Rebellion. It can be really external or it can be internal, um, you know, something that's come up just around the farms that, you know, is relevant to basically whatever, um, it can be whatever issue is kind of, important and, and resonating with people who are doing the day-to-day job and they have that discussion and it's attended usually by at least one if not two of the directors who sit and, and participate or just kind of take on and then you know kind of act on what comes out of that so that's yeah kind of live and and dynamic and a, and a really kind of good way to to get our voice across um in a regular way I think there was uh, quite a lot of cynicism initially that the that how the co-owner council would exert its will and indeed how co-owners would generally, you know, how this autonomy and, you know, how they'd be able to challenge. And, you know, certainly Rob, the managing director, as we approached employee ownership, there were quite a few emails going on around his worry that he was going to drown in consultation, that his whole life was going to be in meetings. Well, a lot of his life is in meetings, but I don't think he feels now, three years on, that any of the, you know, I think the consultation that he does with the, the council is some of the most valuable uh, that he does. And... You know, the big question that was going around around that time was, will this slow up decision-making? Will this stop being a nimble, fleet-of-foot, responsive, you know, organisation? And the answer really is a resounding no. I mean, we all thought it might do, actually including a lot of co-owners. It was one of the most commonly raised questions of, you know, isn't this going to slow down decision-making, which I thought showed a remarkable level of sophistication and and you know yet again you know I, th- I think it was one of the areas that we just really underestimated people and uh, well there has been another element to this transition which i haven't mentioned uh, which was that we did a lot of work we appointed a coach for two coaches actually and did a lot of work on on culture and 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 on on a lot of it actually one way or another i would say was around listening um uh, you know and which as an organization uh, we weren't good at, and I'm afraid to say, turned out a lot of that came from me. Um, and, uh, you know, and that, that was, you know, I would behave like a brat in a board meeting because I thought that's what maverick entrepreneurs did. Uh, and that's why I said to the coach, come on, this is, this can't possibly apply to me. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and she said, absolutely it does. It starts with you. And, uh, and indeed I had behaved like that. Other directors had, had, um, you know, Oh, well, that must be okay. I'll do it as well. And, and it was, um, I think Nina wouldn't disagree with me if I said there was a kind of pretty macho, bullying culture, actually. I'm pretty, I, yeah, I can look back on it now with absolute shame, you know, if I go back five years or even four years. Uh, and that has really, really changed. I mean, I think as an organisation, we are much, much better at listening. I haven't seen a director behave like that for 
for years. Well, I, yeah, when I joined, the transition had already happened. So I joined at the end of 2018. Um, I mean, I can't comment on what the behaviors were like before, but I mean, coming into it fresh, like in comparison to your business, which isn't run and isn't owned by staff, it's very different. Um, yeah, I mean, you're just told constantly that your voice is um, worth hearing. And I would say because we get quite big business as well, like it's, it is one thing having your voice heard and, and then obviously like implementing change is always trickier, especially democratically. Like that is still quite, it can be quite slow to happen, but you're, there's definitely no doubt that your voice is, is, is ready to be heard. And we're asked for our views a lot. And that's, um, that's a really different feeling. Definitely. Like, yeah. And I, I think this is this is very interesting to me because, you know, um, Guy, you also mentioned earlier, you know, people talk about the kind of maybe current capitalist structures as though they're like some sort of, you know, another law, you know, a, a science or, you know, a kind of like the law of gravity or something. And as though we just have to exist in them and they're completely created. So do you feel that this culture as well that you referenced, this macho culture, maybe this quite sort of bullying culture, does that come from that system? Do you feel that that's what's left over from that system and that actually it can very easily be um reimagined or you know people can be you know this idea that we maybe have to behave in that way or that there is you know um hierarchy between us or competition and stuff can that be can people be coached out of that do you see that no i don't know how exceptional i am but i really enjoyed the change you know i'm 60 now and and uh you know, you can't teach dog old tricks, so they say, and, you know, I really disagree with that. So, you know, it's a lifetime learning. And, uh, you know, I think I'm learning as much now as I was when I was a teenager. So I don't think, yeah, I think the culture can be changed is what I'm saying. But I do think, you know, you have to have buy-in. There is a sort of certain inertia if you're surrounded by mm. lots of other businesses that are behaving in that way. And within the business, people are behaving in that way. It can be quite difficult. I was very keen to change and a lot of other people within the business were as well and I think that made it a lot easier and I think it's amazing that it's happened in a way because it's not just like you know internally what people were used to it's also like how the whole of society is run so you've got when you look around you've got no other examples like it's no wonder people absorb that kind of behavior like you look around at other businesses and invariably not always but they're you know they're run top down by mainly men especially in the higher up positions and you kind of just take that on on a really like subconscious level so there's no there's no examples and there's no kind of precedent to even question it so to kind of make a change like that i think can't be underestimated um and that and that i think is the biggest difficulty with replicating it because it's just so pervasive the other way that kind of more traditional way of doing it is just feels so solid to me every company you look at i mean i've been writing about businesses in some form or another through my journalism for you know almost over over 10 years now and um i used to work in the b2b sector for fruit and veg so this this same sector and it's it's overwhelmingly run like traditional model with it with that kind of food industry type macho behavior driven all the way through it and it's just so rare to come across an alternative i mean that's one of the reasons i i even took this job because i came on a press trip to riverford and already knew about the company and met guy and it's just very um it's very striking how it's run differently i think and um i wouldn't have considered it at all had it not been it is all just so bloody stale you know the same yeah. 
you know, and, and you know, what did I hear? 46% of the House of Lords went to Eton. Can you believe it? I mean, it's just jaw-dropping. Anyway, I'm just so sick of hearing the voices of convention just dismissing anything, you know, challenging. You know, I, you know, I think we have it going on at the moment, you know, trying to make, you know, protest virtually illegal, trying to make judicial review very difficult. You know, these are, you know, there is no voice. They're just trying to stamp out any voice of challenge at the very time when we need it most. And it... it, it yeah, anyway, Baba, getting angry. No, this is stuff. brilliant because this is literally what we, did, we were discussing in our last episode, which was about democracy as a whole and society. And obviously now we're looking at it a bit more in practice. And to hear this expressed within a business model is really interesting to hear. So this does lead me on to a couple of things that might sort of be joined. I mean, one you've touched upon, you know, do you think that working the way you guys work is scalable um can be done on a bigger scale and you know what do you think the obstacles are it does sound like you feel that our global culture is a bit of an obstacle to that i don't know if you think there are other obstacles to everybody kind of taking on this way of working that you have well i don't know i i do wonder i was thinking about this and i i'm not sure how kind of right it is but i wonder about the question of scale in itself like when you write when you look at ex ethical businesses and the idea of an ethical business i mean it's obviously possible because you see it and, and you know riverford is one and employee ownership yeah i guess it is scalable but i do worry about the how big you get because there is like guy says this well, as soon as you get this distance between the decision makers and the people who perhaps are making the most money and the people who are doing the job on the on the ground you, you lose this kind of like grounded decision making and whether that's like intentionally you know you know not not good and unethical or just nature of the distance so I, I actually don't know whether it would be desirable and whether there's an upper limit to the size of an ethical business i don't know whether you've got a view on that guy um well i used to be very anti-scale you know i mean and but my views have changed i mean there's no doubt that we are a better business we look after our staff and our customers in a more ethical way um now that we have the scale and the resources that, that have helped us to do that i mean i do think it's easier for a small business to be um you know to be humane in its behavior you know because we are all human beings and and it's the institutions and structures that which are you know, are unavoidable, I'm afraid, that stop us behaving as human beings sometimes. However, you know, there are, unfortunately, I mean, there's a lot of people who claw their way to the top um, are, you know, within businesses, you know, a lot of them are borderline mad. You know, they are, there is something about, you know, the entrepreneurial gene or whatever that is, you know, can be a bit kind of extreme. I mean, they are normally driven by deep-seated insecurities. Um, and, and, you know, just like most dictators, you know, and, and uh, you know, and I think anyway, so I do think there are, there can be lots of problems with small business. And I can only say that I, I think we are a more ethical business, you know, with a thousand of us than we ever were when we were a hundred. Or and I guess, you know, I was thinking more on like the scale of a multinational, but I, perhaps, you know, I'm open to the idea because if you were to have an employee owned, you know, multinational, massive, massive company, then 
you know, you would, it, it would be challenging to say the least, but you definitely would have a, a, you know, if you've got that truly kind of consultative aspect to it, where the people who own it really do have a say, I mean, it would be carnage to run, I imagine, but you, surely that would be quite transformative in, in having that democratic kind of priority kind of side of things. Um, you, you would hope, I, I don't know what the biggest one in the world is in terms of employee owned. It's, can I come back in on that one? Yes, you yeah. can, yes. Um, I think uh, it's, there is a real issue at the moment um, that around new and emerging business and tech business and the influence of the uh, venture capitalist model. And, you know, um, so that now if anyone is in any vaguely promising sector, we're in an era of historically low interest rates, lots of money sloshing around, largely being made by tech industries wanting to find an investment and they'll throw it at anything that even has a vague chance of making money. Now, the thing about an employee ownership structure is that it's very difficult to raise money because you know, you're never going to sell the shares. So, you know, why would anyone, in, you know, you can borrow money from a bank up to, but, you know, they're incredibly conservative. So any level of, you know, risky capital, you know, for quick growth, you know, for world domination, you know, the sort of thing that got Facebook and Google and, you know, and now Deliveroo and Just Eat and everything, all those businesses off the ground. And, and you know, that sort of model is not available to us. And, you know, is that a problem? Um, you know, there are lots of people that would say, well, if you're not growing as fast as everybody else, then you're slipping down the greasy pole and someone else is going to be bigger than you and they're going to be more competitive than you and they're going to squeeze you out of business. That's the kind of conventional model. Indeed, it is the advice that I've paid consultants and that's what they've told me and I just think it's a load of crap. And, and clearly, we're not going to be the biggest and most competitive in the whole sector, but we can be within our own little sector. So the important thing is that we know who we are and what we're trying to do, and we don't try and be like everybody else. And, uh, and you know, there are, there's no one that's trading to our level of, you know, with our sort of ethical criteria that look at, looks after their suppliers the way that we do, that worries about its carbon footprint in the way that we do, and that enjoys such an incredible level of engagement and loyalty from customers, you know, as, as Riverford does. So, you know, we don't need to grow like that. Anyway, I just, I, I hate the whole model. Once again, it's all built around greed and avarice as opposed to people wanting to do good things. I mean, most people get up in the morning and, you know, they, they want to do something useful with their day. And, 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 you know, being part of one of these bloody businesses that, you know, they're just thinking about their next range of funding or what their exit is before they've even sold or made or done anything. And, and I just think it's a hideous model, but that's, you know, the, the prevailing one at the moment. And those are the businesses that are growing. And once more, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's quite an unhealthy growth, I think, and it doesn't leave, doesn't leave a lot of space for people who are driven by wanting to do, you know, really good useful things wanting to make the world a better place anyway so i do think there is it, it for that reason the lack of access to capital potentially you know other businesses will grow faster than us but i think they'll grow faster than us but they'll also go bust faster than us and you know i think we'll be left standing long after these you know a lot of these venture capitalist based businesses are um, long forgotten 
I mean, this this really is this is very interesting in terms of some of the things that we've explored recently. One of them being, you know, um, again when we were looking at sort of alternatives to capitalism, and one of the critiques often being that you know if money isn't motivating people, then people just wouldn't do anything. And you're sort of saying, I mean, that's absolutely that's so limiting and and such a sort of underselling of human nature. Like people want to get up and do things. They'd like to achieve. They'd like to be productive. They'd like to connect with others. And we would always produce and be creative regardless of whether money was kind of motivating us or not. You know, it is kind of seems to be what you're sort of saying. Um, we spoke to Ethical Consumer magazine um, some months ago We um, in an episode around ethical consumption. And, and, they actually sort of said that they don't actually think that for-profit companies have a place in the future. Um, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, um, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, there's just almost common knowledge now that just purely, well, you'd hope so. I mean, we're in a bit of an echo chamber, aren't we, at times? But you'd hope that just chasing profit now, people are at least starting to, or if not fully awake to the fact that that is extremely destructive. And if you look around, like the climate emergency, the eco ecological emergency, like that just doesn't work and it's not going to, it's, it's just going to lead in and lead to disaster. So you'd hope that that sort of was already in motion. So I totally get on board with it. I, I think that Riverford's always had, I mean, one of our, still our core, core values is to be commercially successful. So you, you can't kind of take on these other values and, and, and prioritize other things at the expense of, um, you know, being commercially successful. And that's something that I've, you know, definitely is very kind of, prevalent when you when you join Riverford that's still a really big part of our being because we can't we can't support our co-owners or suppliers without continuing to run as a business so it has a place but yeah totally I mean just chasing profit surely that's just completely outdated now or maybe that's just in our little world I don't know <laughs> I mean there is you know I mean you want us to ask I think what is profit for and you know are you ever going to uh, I, I do I, I'm afraid I'm totally pessimistic that naked capitalism and an unbridled you know free market is going to be has anything like the sophistication to be able to solve the incredibly complex uh you know issues around ecology biodiversity and climate uh, chaos you know it's just it's just not subtle enough it's just too blunt an instrument. You know, these are incredibly complex problems. You know, whenever we look at environmental issues and making the right decisions at Riverford, you know, it tends to be, you know, they are then they're not black and white issues. You know, they really aren't. And you know, and it and, and to be guided by I mean, at the moment, it's driving me nuts. Everyone's claiming they're going to be, you know, carbon zero by uh, by net zero by by 2030. I mean, it's just crap. I mean, the parcel that arrived me today apparently was net zero. How the hell is it net zero? You know, they've just offset their carbon. You know, trading carbon and offsetting it, I mean, most of it is just complete crap. I mean, I've seen a lot of those you know, forests planted in Africa dying. That's, you know, there's someone will have claimed a carbon credit on. You know, it's just an excuse to carry on with business as normal. So that's the kind of market response to all this is to set up a carbon market, which is just a reason, you know, that we can carry on as normal for rather than actually addressing the real issues, you know, about being super efficient in our use of energy and, you know, maybe doing a few less of some things and not eating, you know, so much 
imported vegetables in our case. So, and anyway, I we just know complex for capitalism to deal with. And the answer is that, you know, that, that, you know, a brand is going to do the right thing and the customers will recognize that it's doing the right thing and they'll do drive that business, you know, they'll buy the product and they'll drive the business to do more of the right thing. Absolute bollocks. It just drives the company to spend more on PR, you know, to offset more of its carbon in more dodgy ways. And, you know, they need to spend a bit more. So, so I don't trust the model, I suppose I'm saying. I don't think it does work. And, and, and you know, who do you trust? I do not trust a shareholder who is motivated by their own commercial interests. No, I don't. They'll spend the money on PR and not on doing the right thing. Sorry, Nina, you were going to say something. I talked all over you. No, that's fine. Um, I was just going to say it's becoming a little bit more talked about, like how kind of profit-based and, and extreme capitalism like that is fueling like a lot of these disasters. But I think we need more of that. Like it's only just making like you see it in the nationals this year, perhaps about linking capitalism specifically to the you know absolute destruction that you see in various parts of the world um but i think we need more of that and like that that should be something that the government really takes on i mean fat chance of that with this current government because it's just not never going to happen but that is where it should be coming from they should be you know enforcing that somehow so that that kind of like yeah exactly you know the free market economy is curbed in some way and that is actually how we do business in the new in the future like it, it should just be like law that that isn't how we do it anymore because it couldn't have messed things up more do you know what I mean? Like, how how much longer is it going to be allowed to happen? Slightly in defence of shareholder-owned businesses, you know, they have <laughs> incredible cars, you know. I mean, our electric-powered car, you know, it's just a masterpiece of, you know, sophisticated well, yeah. engineering. And I just don't think that would have been produced by... There is a, something to be said for that. I mean, if you look at the crises that, you, that we face, you know, the the impact that we need to have now is on such a level that the scale of response that the world needs to happen, that in actual fact, you're right, we need all different, you know, approaches to be working to the same goal. And if you can employ like high capital companies in that mission, then great, because we're going to need all the help we can get. So it's good if that, if that kind of helps that as well, but yeah. So I'm going to ask you guys then, I mean, it's, nice to be able to talk about so many other things before we get to, to, to this topic, which we're all sick of. But I mean, so at a, at a, in a year like we've just had, um, where our global infrastructure was kind of, you know, um, flipped on its head and all of some of our usual systems and structures and habits had to be challenged, um, you know, with something like COVID. Do you feel that working the way you work, you know, maybe having already set yourself a little bit up in a bit of a different way, um, to maybe the more mainstream conventional structures, did that make you more or less resilient to those outside changes or to, you know, did it make you more or less able to adapt, protect your employees, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, you know, well-being has been a massive issue in the last year. Like this has been unprecedented in terms of the effect on people and their mental health and just, you know, how they feel about going to work has just been turned upside down. And I think that employee ownership already by default has a strong kind of voice for that kind of thing. I mean, it's been really tough even with that structure in place. So I can't imagine how that would be in a company that didn't give a, a toss about their kind of co co-workers or co-owners um, well-being, because that's been a huge issue in a, in a sector like ours, which has been growing massively. The company's growing. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on. We're all remote. Well, a lot of us are remote working. So I think it has helped in terms of our resilience like that 
kind of um it's been tested in terms of our like strength and and kind of togetherness but it's it's definitely not lost which i think is a credit to the employee ownership culture and you know we're still constantly asked for our views and how we're feeling so that has continued um in terms of the resilience of the business i mean yeah people are motivated to if they're still going into the farm i suppose for the fact that we all kind of we're all in it together and we all you know we're working for something which is our own thing like that ownership kind of side of it you know does come into it we know that the the benefit and the, the success of the business this year and last year you know that comes trickling down to a profit share that's split evenly so that kind of thing helps i think if you're going in in an anxious time or if you're at home in an anxious time like that's got to have some kind of helpful effect i would say I, I think it's undoubtedly massively contributed to our resilience and our ability to respond. I mean, I just, I would feel really uncomfortable. We, we've made a lot of money this year and um, and it's going to be distributed between the co-owners. And in fact, the co-owners, we, we had, we've had discussions over the last couple of months, what are we going to do with it? And and the, the co-owners will, I'm not quite sure what the um, their profit share will be, but it will be very substantial. And they're going to put an equal amount of money into a funds to fight climate change. You know, when we had an outbreak at Riverford, they were so quick to make brave decisions and say, you know, no, we're not going to take those orders. We're going to turn the website off. We're going to send the people home. We're really going to isolate people. We're going to do the bravest sort of testing, you know, twice weekly, people doing their own testing at a time way before anyone else was doing it. And we're going to get them people to do it at home. So then again, you know, all the really forward looking and brave, you know, really, you know, fantastic leadership, I think, that was combined with, you know, a listening culture. And, and really consulting and really caring about people's well-being. I mean, can you imagine if you're comparing that with certain other companies I've heard about, that you, you know, internet trading companies made absolute windfall profits and it all just going into the shareholders. You know, the staff are doing all the bloody work and taking all the risk and the shareholders are taking all the profit. I mean, I, you know, I think that would be a very uncomfortable situation. This has been very uplifting, actually, to, to hear it so kind of... Um... Yeah, I, I think for people to hear, you know, that you you do not, if you want these types of values, if you want to feel them, if you want to experience them, you don't necessarily have to go right out into some kind of, you know, completely, I don't know, hippie off-grid lifestyle and have absolutely nothing to do with business or innovation or whatever it is that people think that they have to sort of compromise on. It's, it's been very interesting to hear where they meet at an intersection. So what if people have want to set up um a company like yours how would they go about it at any size what are your tips hey, well the employee ownership uh association you know which you can find online will give you uh you know some pretty good um hints about different models and so on and how to go about it and the sort of practical side of it but i would say go and visit lots of you know we did when you know i spent 15 years researching it visiting cooperatives and in the end settling on employee ownership and visiting you know different types of employee ownership and trying to and 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 yeah really be patient about it and um you know and i do think it's it's a fantastic model uh, but don't charge into it i guess would be my advice do your research and I think also like, cause not everybody starts a business or, um, has a kind of say in how they set one up. So I think even if you're just listening and you're somebody who works for a business, then you could kind of like 
apply some of the employee ownership principles in a way, like not anything too groundbreaking, but just kind of like be aware that there is another way of doing things. And you could, you know, teach yourself to question things. Like I think people accept um, management decisions just because they're managers. And I just think like, you don't need to do that in a provocative way, but you shouldn't just accept that things are being done right. And, you know, you can kind of take that on at any point. You don't need to start a business to do that, like question it. And hopefully if they're a good manager or a good leader, they would kind of accept that and the whole thing can progress. But a lot of people just think, oh, well, that's what they said. That's what's happening. And it's very passive. And I just think, why, why should you be passive like that? Like have a, have a, you know, take a bit of control of your own, your own day and who you work for. So this week I spoke to Voss Hodgson, whose official role at SUMA is company secretary, but like all SUMA members, he multitasks and he can sometimes be seen driving the truck in the warehouse or loading up lorries or sitting at a desk doing some other roles. Um, So yeah, he very much changes according to the day and the week. And he's been there for around 15 years, so he's really seen the full spectrum of roles that you can have at SUMA and experienced them all. He also advocates for co-ops outside of his day job. So he's on the Workers' Co-op Council and the Cooperative UK Board. So I sat down with him to learn more about what it means to be a member versus a traditional employee and why Suma thinks that workers' cooperative is the best way to do things. I heard someone who works at Suma describe us as like fluffy capitalists the other day and I thought that was quite a way of describing it. Not in that, you know, we think, oh yeah, we're this capitalist thing and, you know, we're trying to do all these things, but you obviously work in that marketplace. That's the, you know, that's what the prevalent thing is in this country and we we have we work within that um so i think you'd look at us and say well we're quite a socialist organization you know everybody um has one share one member one vote and we literally all get paid the same irrespective of what job you do um and so you know a lot of people look at that and go well, yeah that's incredibly socialist but obviously we have to work in the place where we buy stuff and sell stuff and pay people and reward people and you know all that stuff and so I think it does play a part. I think um, it plays a part in why we're there and why people come to it because they, you know, they identify with that way of working and, you know, they don't like other way of working. But I don't think something I suppose we don't describe ourselves in that, in that manner. So we, we don't sort of externally say, oh, we're a communist organisation or we're a socialist organisation. And probably if you asked everybody that worked there, you'd probably get about, 50 different opinions about what we were and that's maybe why we can't describe ourselves. So it is probably a mixture of all those things, but whilst also trying to work within the framework of, you know, that capitalist society that we're in. Um, and certainly we, we can't say that we're not a part of that because we are a part of that. Yeah. I think it's really interesting actually that term fluffy capitalist, because I think it speaks to sort of the ethics and what is it about capitalism that we're, we're identifying as wrong. Um, because what makes a company inherently unethical? Is it the way it's structured? So is it tackling the structure that will make it more ethical? Um, is it the fact, is it the way that employees are treated? So the fact that um, 
traditionally profits are made and those profits aren't shared with employees or is it the very nature of making a profit in itself that's unethical um i know that in a previous episode we spoke to ethical consumer about ethical consumption and one of the contributors actually said that they believe that for-profit companies don't have a place in the future at all if we're looking at moving away from capitalism so i want to maybe explore this with you in terms of what you actually think it is that makes capitalism unethical and how maybe businesses can be can a business ever be truly ethical and why maybe this business model might be more ethical within I guess the current structures that we do have and I think when you look at that sort of traditional maybe capitalist structure of sort of wealth going outwards um or wealth going to a few people the whole point of the work has been in control of that is that it doesn't and so yeah you can you can certainly look at sewer and say well we're unethical because we drive trucks all around the country and yeah, we, we deliver vegetarian food, but you know, there's always bits you can look at and go, well, you know, that's not um, as ethical as it might be, or could you do it this way? But yeah, I think that certainly how you treat your employees, how you treat your workers, um, the fact that all those people and all those, you know, there's 300 people and, you know, however many people have come and gone along the way and the extra benefits they've had of working at SUMA over where they did work somewhere else, um, and the lives changed through that. And I think that makes you a bit more ethical that that's something you're going to reward those people that are putting in the labor, that are doing the work, extracting that. So I think that's a, certainly a factor. I think the, the notion of, yeah, the, I, I suppose I see where the person's coming from about the not profit not being a thing for businesses in the future. And um, I think certainly the way we work, it's very much we run the business because we have to make a profit to be able to survive and pay the workers. So I suppose it's more that workers have to, or businesses have to have a bit more of a purpose about them, something that's a bit more than just make profit. Um, but even as I say that, you know, you, you go to any number of sort of horrible companies and they'll all have a sort of corporate social responsibility plan, a sustainability plan, and, and they'll have much more of that than we have because um, yeah, I suppose to, to a lot of places it's more marketing so I suppose what makes it ethical is it's more the things you do than the things you do to make yourself sound good you know it's that whole you know paying your taxes um, looking after your workers um, maybe you wouldn't need all that stuff if you'd done all that you wouldn't country wouldn't need all those you know sustainability things and corporate outreach and all those things if they just paid everybody appropriately and paid some tax, it would probably resolve it. Um, so, yeah, I think the way we are and do things, it's more along those lines, you know, look after the people that work there um, and look after the community, which I suppose is just quite a big co-op thing as well, part of those co-op principles. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there you spoke to sort of, the, the dilemma that a lot of our guests speak about, which is working within the system, whilst also simultaneously perhaps trying to dismantle some of the principles of it and some of the negative effects of it. Uh, you spoke a lot there about the individual benefit that it has. Why did you personally decide to, to work this way? Was it a conscious decision to work for a workers' co-op? And how have you seen it, if you have worked in a more conventional working structure, how have you seen it to be different, better, worse, etc.? I mean, I'd love to have a, like a really great answer of how like, I came to co-ops and working co-ops, but um, pretty much I started working there 
um, 14, 15 years ago in the summers um, and just just never left. Just loved the way it, it was. Loved that it sort of was an introduction into a different sort of world. Um, and yeah, loved it and then never left. Um, I mean, so my experience of working in, in other places is, is more mid. Um, but yeah, certainly a different structure to the, you must do this now and someone's looking over your back and checking over stuff and um, yeah, just far more relaxed. Um, I think it's one way you almost get to a point where you're like, I'm not sure I could go back, I could do anything else. It's almost like you get so indoctrinated to this thing that the thought of another thing is uh, almost um, petrifying to it. Um, but then a lot of people come to us in that way. You know, they, they come and do a bit of short-term work and then realize they love it and then, you know, never leave. Yeah, because you mentioned, I think, that there are over 300 members. So really practically, how are decisions made? Because I guess in a more traditional structure, the people at the top, quote-unquote, at the top, make the decisions on behalf of everyone. But at Sumo, if something were to change, how would that decision be made? Yeah, so where you see that, particularly now we're bigger, I mean, we sort of have to elect groups to make decisions because everybody can't be involved in every decision we make um, just because of the practicalities of that. And, you know, we have departments that have more expertise in certain things. So, you know, we, within our structure, we elect a board, you know, like you'd see in any other company other than, you know, we're the only board in the country where they're all workers are the board. Um, and we also have a member council that's sort of set up to represent member issues and make sure that the members are getting represented. So, yeah, you see a lot of, of that sort of elected groups to make decisions. Uh, but also we have a lot of sort of general meetings of the members where anybody can bring anything. So they say, oh, I'm, I, want to, I want us to do this or I want this to happen. So there's, there's more of a route into that. There's more, there's more ways to change the people that are elected to those roles. And there's more ways to bring things to direct them. It maybe takes longer to do stuff in a co-op. And sometimes that's true, sometimes it's not. But what that, what that generally means is you're spending more time engaging with the members and trying to talk to them about what you're doing. So you, anything, you'll often see the end decision is a very quick decision because you say, oh, we're going to vote on this. But by that point, hopefully everybody knows what it is and they've had their chance to change it. And the thing that's been voted on is um, a lot more understood um, and people like it and you know whether they like it by that point. Um, whereas maybe that's not always the case if there's votes or decisions being made where people haven't had that input into it. So do you find that because workers are more involved in decision-making, making that conflict arises um, maybe more often than usual? Because if people aren't consulted, I guess they can't have conflict with the consultation. Um, and how is that traditionally resolved? And how do you ensure that with the boards, et cetera, and the committees that you have that they remain representative, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd be lying if I said there wasn't conflict, and probably we, um, it's probably why I'm terrible at advising people I know about how to deal with situations where I'm like, well, just tell them you're not doing it, or tell them what you think of them. They're like, well, I can't do that. I'm like, oh, right. Um, so probably we're, we're a bit more forthright with each other, and then maybe there is a bit of conflict in that. Um, hopefully, you know, there's lines obviously in that, you know, you need people to be respectful. Um, and, you know, we still have a personnel department and we have 
grievance procedures and disciplinary procedures so people can still get themselves in trouble if they're getting out of hand so it's but i think people are a bit more open and they're a bit more likely to challenge or query something and sometimes that can be annoying particularly if they're querying what you're doing um but often you hope it maybe you get more scrutiny on things and and that means the thing you end up with is a bit better because it's had to go through that and and i suppose it's a sign that people feel like well actually if i do own this place then i you know i've got a problem with this i need to say or if i've got something to input um so that conflict i suppose i'm using conflict in the negative sense it's not always negative um in terms of how that happens and i think having more input and more angles on something um, hopefully makes something better yeah i think you've hit the nail on the head there conflict is not inherently negative thing is it it's just it's just um opinions meeting let's say <laughs> yeah i suppose people communicate in different ways and sometimes there can be real gems in between a lot of the conflict you know like, oh actually that point that makes a lot of sense you know all this other stuff i'm not sure what the you know they've just been a bit angry about this or they've been a bit but you know in between all of that you can find a lot of good stuff and um, and yeah certainly you want a bit of that constructive challenge and um, because it usually makes things go better i want to talk a little bit actually now about contribution because i think a big factor of things like capitalism is the whole notion of productivity contribution remuneration based on how much you hard work um, and meritocracy and all of these principles. In a co-op, because it sort of is member owned and worker owned, does everyone have to sort of contribute equally? I mean, I think you've said in the structures there are different sort of boards and different members and different roles, et cetera, but can you be an employee and not a shareholder? Or is it somewhere something where there's a certain level of expectation about how much you must contribute to be a member, et cetera, et cetera? How does that sort of contribution work? It's a sort of, almost constant debate internally about people taking on roles and will people take on responsibility without that sort of extra remuneration or extra um, and I think we find people do um, and yeah you're always going to have bits where you might say well that person doesn't do enough or they don't put themselves forward and I think there's a bit of trying sort of collective responsibility but also self-managing and so, you know, we do have review structures um, and try and move people on. But yeah, there's certainly a tension within that. But then actually you find overall um, the benefit of that ownership um, and that self-management sort of outweighs the sort of worries of, oh, well, what if this person isn't putting in as much as this person? Um, which, I mean, I suppose it's maybe natural to focus on the, the negative of, oh, this, this one's really frustrating, or this person's really frustrating, when actually there's 200 other people that are just getting on and doing stuff and putting it in. And So, yeah, I mean, you're always going to have little bits of that, but I think that in terms of the expectation, you know, we all have the same sort of member contract and member job description, um, and that's the expectation that you live and you work to that, um, and you push to that. Now, to, within that, there's specialist skills. You know, we've got a design team, we've got an IT team, we've got accountant. You know, there's all sorts of different things you'll be reviewed in your teams and the expectations of that. You know, we do our targets. So, like, we have a warehouse, well, several warehouses, um, and we have targets for the people doing the work because just to make it work, to make sure you get orders in in the morning and you get them out in the evening. But then 
you know, you see these reports about Amazon warehouses and various other warehouses where, you know, they're not allowed toilet breaks or they're not allowed this. And it's like n nobody's, I mean, COVID's actually meant we've had to be a bit stricter on shift times for crossovers and stuff just to make sure that we're, you know, being that sort of COVID secure. But generally, you know, if you want to go for a break, you go for a break. Um, you know, there's no one standing around looking at you and watching over you all the time. It's a very different sort. But at the same time, someone is going to say, well, we've got certain targets we need to meet because otherwise the stuff doesn't leave at the end of the day. It's completely flat there. So everybody gets exactly the same. I think, I think that's a really, really interesting concept for people that will be listening and something that will be completely outside of what they might expect or be used to in a workplace. And I think what, just maybe an extension of my previous question there would be, obviously a lot of the time, motivation is linked to remuneration. So what do you think, and you can answer from a personal point of view, um, what do you think maybe motivates people to contribute or, or to do these different roles that might be traditionally valued differently? if they're receiving the same remuneration as someone who's doing something that might traditionally be valued as lesser? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a complex question and probably a lot of people would say there's no way that would work, but then it does work um, because, you know, we keep growing and it keeps happening and we keep doing it. And um, I think it, it's one of those ones where, you know, you, you survey people and you say, what's your biggest motivation in work? And you look at the surveys and everyone's like, oh, it must be money, it must be money. But when you see the surveys, it's never money. That's the first thing. Um, even if people think it's money, but there's a lot of other factors. So, you know, you went about, talked about political stuff earlier. You know, lots of people come to Sumo for different reasons. You know, you know they want that structure. They want that freedom. Um, they want it that way of work. Um, you know, they want the different ways of working, I suppose. That, and so that money isn't always the entire motivator. And so, you know, we still all get paid a, a decent wage. Um, but yeah, you could certainly say, well, actually, if you were doing that at wherever, you, you'd probably earn more than this um, for some roles. So I think it, it shows that there are other factors, why people do stuff and why people take stuff off. And it's probably a living example of that. So yeah, I don't have one set answer to that because probably it's different for each person. Certainly for me, I think it gives you a lot of opportunities that you perhaps wouldn't have. Um, so I went on to our management committee, which is now our board, um, probably well before I was capable of doing it. <laughs> but you know, those opportunities to develop are probably more there, more training, and um, yeah, with that the freedom and you know the fact that what you're doing is directly rewarding yourself um, and having that feeling of ownership and the, the care of it. I think it's hard to quantify that. Um, and probably on a day-to-day -day basis, probably people fluctuate. But um, I think overall, when you think about that, it, it gives you a bit more of a drive with it. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of factors with it. And like I said, I think a lot of people would say, you know, there's no way that can work. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. There's definitely more to remuneration and value than just money. But also, I think what you've said in your answer is that actually it's, it's questioning how we value things as well. So who's to say that working on a workshop floor is any less or more valuable than working in the boardroom or working on a design or working as the accountant? Who's to, who's to say that 
these contributions are any less or more than another. So I think it is a really, really interesting um, model. And, and again, like you said, the opportunity to actually explore different facets of who you are, because often I think we get lumbered into one job role that has very specific things that we're able to explore. But if you have slightly a slightly more open system where you are able to contribute to lots of different things, it actually means that maybe as a person we're able to explore more facets of ourselves and what we can contribute to a society. So I can definitely see some benefits. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that point about the, the value of each role as well is really interesting when you think it's almost like society and that structure of, has told you that these things, this thing has more value than the other thing. And maybe COVID's made people think, well, actually some of these things, you know, this whole key worker thing and some of these things are actually more important than we've given them credit for. You know, you see the stuff about nurses pay and, you know, well, most of the workers at Sumer are key workers because delivery drivers and, you know, and it's, it's actually, well, actually these things are integral to everything working you know maybe that's the bit that's off exactly the delivery driver contributes as much to the profit of the company if not more because he's getting the product to the end customer than the person who designs the packaging and then the person who does x and x and x so yeah, yeah. it's sort of saying we're acknowledging that we all contribute to making this work so we're all going to be remunerated for making this work yeah which i think is a really 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 interesting concept um, so is there a limit on who can join because you all sort of have ownership of the company? Is there a limit on the number of people that can join and how do you decide who gets to join or is it sort of endless? Like as the company grows, there could be a million members at one point if, if, that, if that's applicable. Yeah, well, in theory there could be, um, although we're probably already you know, quite big, but there's, there's no limit on it. So, you know, in theory, it's just open and voluntary membership. So we can keep doing more. Now, in reality, um, in terms of running the business, we sort of try to put numbers on it so that we can grow in a way that we can manage. Um, and, you know, we put sort of targets on or we can manage as many people at the moment. So often we'll get loads of people applying and more people than we can handle. And that leaves a lot of people disappointed. But at the same time, we've got to handle it through so that we can actually sort of bring those people through to membership. Um, so there's usually people going through that every year, a certain number. Um, I think we just started about 16 or so past few months. Um, and we'll probably do a few more as the year goes on. So yeah, it gradually grows as we as we go on. And we have a sort of membership recruitment process, which is you know pretty well drilled now, where we um, probably like a lot of recruitment processes, we bring people in and you know we look at them and, and they have an interview at the end of that, and then they go through a trial process. So the timing of that can vary, but it's like nine months a year where you work in different departments and you get assessed as you go along and people can feed back. And then by the end of that, if you've done everything you were meant to do, um, then you, you become a member at the end of that process. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's probably not a lot different to someone maybe working and going on probation and then eventually getting a full-time contract. And um, it's just, I suppose the thing at the end is more of a reward maybe um, because you're actually getting your share in the business. Okay, so in the recruitment process, there's not sort of like an extra box that you have to tick that says, I sort of, <laughs> that sort of filters people based on their philosophies or their, their worldview or anything. It's more of a um, maybe 
quote unquote conventional um, recruitment process and then like you say there happens to be a benefit at the end of it yeah I think it's more that when we do the interview process at the start so like a lot of the interview questions and they we, because we get quite a lot of applicants we've been doing these recruitment days where we can you know do different tests and see them do stuff and so you're trying to get that out there and obviously you're not going to you're not going to capture everything in any interview process you're always going to pick stuff up and miss stuff but yeah it, it's more that you try and pick that up at that point and then it's the lived experience and often you know you can see people who people might look at and think oh they don't know anything about co-ops so they're not going to work here you know people have their own prejudices don't they um and, and they can be great cooperators and then the flip side can be true of people that you know a lot of the theory and you know talk the talk and live the life and actually when it comes to working cooperative they're absolutely terrible at it um, and so yeah sometimes you know people can surprise you um, and so yeah you've got to be wary of you, you know you, you don't want to rule people out before they start but yeah there is there is that sort of stuff to try and get into that no definitely uh, I would agree with that sentiment completely and mm -hmm. um, so Ross maybe if Sumer itself can't have a million members maybe we just have to look at an alternative, which might be the sustainability of having lots of little sumers dotted around the country. Do you think that this way of working is sustainable or realistic on a large scale in terms of maybe not sumer growing, but having lots of different replicas of sumer in different industries as well um, around the company, country? Um, and if so, how do you think that might happen? How do you think we might transition to that? Yeah, so I mean, I suppose I would say I think it is it is a, a thing we can do. Um, you know, you see there are other worker co-ops, particularly you know in food. Uh, there are you know we're certainly small, and if you look at the rest of the food sector, but the, there are. And I think even at Sumo, you know, we have bits of discussions about could we split ourselves up, um, and would that help sort of grow wider? Um, I think in terms of how you do that, it's probably quite a big. It's a big thing to move from where we are now to, to that. You know, cooperatives in themselves aren't really a big part in this country um, and certainly not understood. You know, there's a lot of education there. There's a lot of just basic, you know, when people are being advised to set up a business, people saying, oh, you could set up a co-op. You know, that sort of thing isn't within those traditional structures. There's a lot of change there um, in terms of um, sort of, even just the legal infrastructure, the you know business advice structures, um, how that happens. I mean, there's a there's a law in Italy that sort of failing businesses are sort of offered to their workers. That's a standard thing, and there's funding for that. So, so there's models out there, and there's methods, and there's you know countries who do more than us. But yeah, I think it's a big step from where we are to to that, um, and I think caught. Cooperatives UK, we've got the Apex body. You know, there's a lot of work through that to go. Well, actually, let's have the the models and the structures which they do um, to educate people more and to bring that more into that those discussions more. But yeah, I think it's some big steps. And do you think that um, working in this way has made you? more resilient or less resilient i guess this year has been a really good case study for that with covid have you found that sumer has felt more resilient to covid than maybe some other different company structures or do you feel that it actually might have impacted you more because of the way that you work i think well in one hand i think in a way we've been lucky that we sell food 
Um, so that obviously um, has you know massive demand put into that. You know, um, in terms of keeping up with that, I think the structures have helped us make the decisions we needed to make through that time. And, you know, we had to change our working practices. Like I talked about, you know, that freedom to, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm meant to be starting at six, but I'm rocking up at eight today because I'm slept in a bit. We've had to be a bit more, actually, you can't do that anymore because we need to have set shifts and we need the crossover so that we, we're not mixing bubbles and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, we made those changes very quickly. People adapted to them, you know, big decisions, people were involved. Uh, they understand, you know, so I think it's really helped us adapt and, you know, constantly adapt to what's changed through the year and to be resilient in, well, this is the stuff we've got to do to survive through this. And people think, well, actually, even though we sell food, you know, we're at real risk here if we don't manage this properly of this being the end of us, you know, if we don't manage the workers and look after the workers, then, you know, nothing's going to happen. And, so I think it, it's shown the strengths of that model of ownership um, rather than somebody saying, you must come in the office. Um, it's been a, well, actually, we, we want to make the place safe for everybody. It's not a, you have to come in and do stuff because I'm the boss and I'm telling you to do stuff and I own this building and I need some use out of it. It's, well, how do we keep the business going and how do we make it safe for everybody? Um, so certainly... I, I, I think it's been a big plus in how we've reacted and ma managed ourselves through that period. Certainly, it sounds to me like um, the flexibility and the creativity that is involved in having workers as contributing so much to the workplace has been a real strength for you guys, but also the individual knowledge that you all have to sort of grow in order to be a member um, helps you, has helped you in this way. Um, would you say, this is just an aside question, but would you say that working in this way on a personal level has made you more engaged or democratic in general? Do you find yourself more engaged in wider society because of the way that your attitude towards working, I guess? Yeah, I think I do. And I think you do. Um, I think you know, even like like local council stuff or local stuff, you're a bit like, oh, why are they doing that? Or why is the school doing this? Or um, and then the, obviously the bigger political spectrum, you look at it and you you know, and I certainly look at I'm more interested in sort of governance now and structures and seeing how businesses work. Um, so certainly, I think it opens your mind to it because you you you're more involved. You know, you've been elected to a thing and you've done that, and you're like, oh yeah, I did that. I've done that. Or we vote on this stuff and I think whilst it yeah it makes you more aware of your own business I think it makes you more aware of how things happen in society and you view them differently so Ross we always try and end after we've spoken a bit about the theory um, of the things and introduce people to the concepts we always try and end on some practical tips so if there's someone listening who thinks oh, I would either love to work for Workers' Co-op or just to take on a few of the principles, um, or I want to set up a Workers' Co-op. <laughs> what would your advice be for them in terms of first steps? The most practical step I'd say is, if you're at all interested in setting up a co-op, is to, to reach out to Cooperatives UK because, um, one, they've got lots of people who can help you and advise you, but also they have links to 
sort of co-op developers and people that can help you. They have a, a program called The Hive where you apply and people will come and work with you and help develop your ideas, help yourself as a co-op, um, and that's all funded. Um, so there is lots of support out there, and I think that's one of the biggest things that I'd say to, to anyone in that situation is um, because of the notion of co-ops and how they are against sort of limited businesses and stuff, it's more difficult if you want to just go up, go that alone and click on a button and be like, oh, yeah, I'm away now, because there isn't that much advice. And certainly that's what I'd be saying is go go to them, speak to them, and you will find that help and support. And also they can direct you out to other co-ops. You know, in my experience, there's always people in co-ops who are happy to talk to people and help them and advise them with issues they might have. Um, and certainly as we've gone on, the advice we give probably isn't as useful to someone who's just starting because we're in a very different place. Um, but, you know, we certainly do 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 that when we can and do talk to people. Um, and, yeah, if you want to be a member of a co-op, there's probably more people are members of a co-op than they think if you've got one of those blue co-op cards because um, your local shop happens to be a co-op and you're already a member of a co-op. I think it's one of those, um, you know, figures where actually even not in the UK, but worldwide, there's billions and billions of people are members of co-ops, but they might not realise it. It's like the notion that virtually every farm in the in the UK is, is they're all parts of farming co-ops, and there's more there's co-ops hidden in places that you can't see them. You get a lot of what they call them, like community benefit societies now, where people take over their local pub or their local hall or whatever. Um, and there's a lot more of that happening now where sort of community shares, where people take over and, you know, communities come together to, to look after themselves. Um, so certainly worker-wise, it's not as big, but, you know, there's, there's co-ops in, in lots of places and there's lots of different sorts of co-ops. It's, it's just really a method of people taking control of a thing rather than letting someone else take control of it for them. Um, and there's, there's lots of support and help to do that stuff. Okay, so um, some really, really interesting thoughts and chat there. What did you think, Mona? I really think your context that you're from makes a really big difference in, like, even, I guess, what you think progress looks like, right? So, like... Mm. For, for a company like Riverford, um, you know, operating in an incredibly kind of corporate, well, you know, maybe like capitalist industry and sector. And, you know, if you're comparing it to sort of, yes, you know, a company that could have been sold off to venture capitalists or, or you know, whatever, you know, like when you sort of look at what the scale is, you go, wow, OK, that's come like such a far way. Like when you said people are earning 150 times their median employee or whatever, then obviously nine times is like, wow, what progress? Yeah. And then I guess you kind of hear like the total flat pay structure thing and so on. And you're like, cool. So for somebody that might have been starting off going, like like our guest said in our socialism episode, literally it's not about reducing gaps in inequality. It is literally just about getting rid of class inequality altogether then suddenly you're like, okay, so then that puts the benchmark somewhere else, right? And I just I just think it's really yeah. interesting to look at that. Like if we take everything from our socialism episode to our capitalism episode and we sort of plot things along the line, I guess that's where people's reference point comes from as to whether something is 
crazy revolutionary or not. Yeah, yeah. And I think what it sort of raised for me was the idea of inequality and ethics when it comes to business. So what the question of, I guess, what is it that we're saying is wrong? And then that helps us understand whether these these different models provide solutions, because are we saying that it's wrong that we work for money at all? Mm-hmm. Are we saying that it's wrong that there's differences in the remuneration? Mm-hmm. Are we saying that it's wrong how we value different inputs? Are we saying that excessive profit is wrong? Like, what are we identifying as the wrong? Because then I think that helps inform how you would choose to, I guess, address the wrong. Um, so if you think that profit in itself is wrong, then I guess whether that profit goes to the employee or um, goes to the CEO or goes into the community or whatever in general it's wrong to have structures that result in profit but if we're saying that it's the fact that it's so unequal that's the fundamental wrong then yeah I think both of these models go some way to attacking that and to addressing that so it was really interesting for me to actually try and think in my identify in my mind what it is that I think is wrong with the current way that the majority do it um and I think that definitely the inequality in it is one of the big wrongs um yeah, because when we spoke to Ethical Consumer Magazine in our Ethical Consumption episode, right, they um, we spoke to them a bit about the framework that you use to measure ethics um, and like saying that actually these days it feels like maybe the environment has become a really big one. If, if people mm. can say they're sustainable, then kind of everything's fine. Um, and actually that was what led us to do an episode on workers' rights because we were like, well, everybody's maybe a bit quite concerned about the environment now, but actually is it fine to pay your workers only minimum wage or whatever as mm. long as you have sustainable packaging, for example, right? So it's all these... And, and Ethical Consumer had a pretty tight framework, which I think, you know, we, we can repost... Um, with this episode as to what they use to measure companies on Mm -hmm. ethics. And it was everything from humans, animals, the planet, you know, and and so on. Um, And interestingly, they sort of said, we don't actually think for-profit companies have a place in the future if if we really want to move in, in that direction, right? But I guess you're dealing still, and this is what we always talk about, what can we do within the system? Yes, and what exactly. can we do if we want to change the system completely? So Azar from our socialist episode would say it is not about reducing inequalities. It's just about getting rid of any inequality whatsoever. That's a socialist exactly. society. And then Guy is kind of, you know, in a business world going, look at how much we've challenged the the capitalist mindset and the macho mindset and the corporate mindset already. But we are nonetheless needing to trade and survive and make profit and, yeah. and progress. Yeah. Right. No, yeah, I, I think I think that's exactly right. Exactly how you summarised it. Um, it is all about context and about, I guess, again, I feel like we repeat ourselves quite a lot, but that's good because it shows that um, we're consistent. There are certain, <laughs> yeah, and that there are certain principles that might just be true when fighting for social change, mm-hmm. which is that there's a micro and the macro that sort of have to exist alongside one another, and I guess the only well not the only but one of the conflicts come from the fact that you're hoping that the micro isn't damaging the the ability for the macro to happen Mm, if that mm. makes any sense so you hope that by still continuing to pursue profit pursue commercial success and world domination I think it was even one of the terms that got thrown around um you're not sort of harming the ability for society to completely move away from these things if that's what we're saying we want as a society Absolutely. Um, And I think, um, you know, this, like, again, while you are in this capitalist infrastructure, 
potentially, if you give away all your profits, um, I don't know, you know, then maybe you're like, damn it, I can't pay for my warehouse or I can't, you know, I'm, I'm now trying to trade with this other company that have these prices and I don't really know what to do. So, and we even in the socialism episode asked Azar, can you have one country in the world be socialist if the rest mm. of the world mm. isn't? Because we're now even trading globally, right? So, and she was saying, yes, I think you can. I think it's tougher. I think you're fighting more, you know, resistance from the outside but you've got to start somewhere and I guess on an even smaller scale we're kind of saying a company like Sumer is probably the closest you might have to some sort of like socialist company model trying to compete I mean they're big they they have a viable business I mean they're surviving you know do you know what I mean so I think it's obviously possible more work I'm sure goes into it and you're maybe never going to become a millionaire out of it so what are your priorities is, is, is definitely also the question um, of like self versus versus social good. Mm. Yeah, it's quite interesting that both of our guests were also from the world of food. I know that there are cooperatives and employee owned businesses in lots of different fields. I mean, John Lewis is an employee owned business, for example. Um, and we have lots of examples of co-ops and from everything to football clubs, the cooperative bank and um shop chain for example but it's interesting that um and johnny spoke about this in his sort of definition that food seems to be an area where there's quite a lot of cooperatives and i wonder you can listen to our food episode obviously where we spoke about how food is inherently political but i wonder if there's something to that as well um the idea that sort of the connection that food gives you to the grassroots to the ground to sort of um yeah, I just think food is a unique space for this kind of business model as well. I, I feel like there's something about the fact that if you're selling something that you almost can't deny is such a basic human right, you might feel even worse about making like excessive profit out of it. I mean, there are mm. clearly people doing it, but I think maybe something about, um, you know, if you if you were selling gold watches you might already acknowledge that what you're selling is very elite so the fact that your company is also elite maybe doesn't seem to stand out that much but maybe if you're going like i'm selling organic veg from the ground to feed people yes it might bring you a bit closer to ideas of universality for example i don't know as i'm getting very philosophical about it here (laughs) yeah yeah no i think i think that's interesting to think about um and i guess one of the, the the last thing for me that was that stuck out was structures. So we've had a lot of conversation about structures and in our Stadsnamaden case study episode, when we spoke to Villamai, um, she spoke a lot about allergy to structures and that when living alternatively, one of the big things is trying to not get too involved in structures and um, meetings and processes and things like that. But I guess when applied to business, we've seen that both of these um, examples did have to have some kind of structure. And even if that wasn't hierarchical in terms of pay, there were still sort of representatives and decision makers and, and boards and stuff like that, which I think, again, is something to think about in terms of how things can operate and how... I guess it's um, that distinction between representative democracies that we spoke about in our last episode and direct democracy, where literally every decision, I am there representing my voice or I'm putting my trust in someone else to sort of, you know, do that for me. Yeah, I feel for me, this is definitely like the thing, you know, you can ideologically, philosophically, whatever 
agree with something and then it's always about okay then then we really need to do some hard work to put it into practice especially if we're fighting a system around us that doesn't teach it to us and I think that's something that Guy spoke about right like the mindset the macho mindset the bullying boss mindset you know you might have been taught that yourself um, and then you're coming in and trying to say, no, 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 I really want to hear everybody's opinion. Um, and they spoke about how they've had like coaches come in and personal coaches and they've actually gone through almost like a therapy process to get themselves yeah. to a place where you unpick your own like learnt behaviours um, because it's all well and good saying I want to hear everybody's opinion, but are you going to act on it? Are you going to take it up when you disagree with it? Um, are you going to put your foot down at the end of the day when really, you know, your own opinion opinion doesn't match? So I think there's so much cultural change. Um, and I think we, we heard about this in the capitalism episode, imagination. How do we imagine something different, right? In the socialism mm-hmm. episode, there's human beings involved and we've been groomed in a certain way for years now. And so I think this is what's super interesting to me is when you find examples where people have had to actually work on the human psychology as well as the structures mm. um and mm. actually Villemai said in our status of the episode you know yes one of the reasons we might remain only 10 people is because then we can just about reach consensus mm. um and so guy was talking about you know maybe having been a bit overwhelmed people might have thought but if we suddenly want the opinions of hundreds of people what are we going to do it's going to be a nightmare yeah. it's going to be a mess right yeah. um but actually i think something about um like actually having more faith in in human nature like building it up right raising the bar and saying you can you can reach it rather than lowering it and going not even going to try and expect more of you that's why i think some of the stuff that suma does was really um innovative and cool in the sense that both having the flat pay structure and rotating in roles it does something interesting for how we value we spoke about this in our democracy episode as well but the idea that um exposing yourself to difference gives you even if not every person can attend the meetings, it means that you've got a perspective of everything, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So Mm -hmm. if I'm physically in the warehouse one day and then I'm physically in the boardroom another day and then I'm physically at the desk another day, I have enough lived experience to be able to represent that opinion because I've done it slightly or I've interacted with someone in the warehouse on Monday who's told me this opinion and I've interacted with someone on Tuesday that's told me about... um, the packaging design or et cetera, et cetera. So through exposing yourself there, I think you automatically might get some of that. Um, and then through placing sort of the flat value monetary wise on remuneration wise on roles, I think also um, goes some way to shifting that mindset as well. So yeah, I think I think definitely what you're saying is right. But No, fully. I think when I used to work in more kind of social policy and like central government and whatever, this is all, this this was always a thing like people that are making the decisions and shaping policy making it about things they've never really worked in or never tried and then mm. they might sometimes mm. tokenistically be like oh let's bring a youth worker in to hear their opinion about our youth strategy or let's get a teacher in to hear the, uh, their opinion about our education strategy but really like if you like unless you've maybe literally been in a classroom all day and you've been like na 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 this new policy will not work because it just cannot be applied um you know are you ever going to be able to make the right decisions and so yeah. it can't just be token it can't just be we tick the box that said that we referred with our um 
you know, whatever our stakeholders or our beneficiaries, right? It, it, it needs to be real and it needs to inform the design of, of the whole process. And so that that definitely, and I think I was saying, you know, there is there is still work to do and you're always doing that work and you might realise that you yourself are the culprit of setting a bad culture and that's yeah. obviously a hard thing yeah. to face. Um, but um, as always, um, I mean, a lot to dig into, but we're going to we're going to share resources with people, you know, organisations to look up, inclu- including sort of co-ops UK and, you know, bodies and federations that might advise people and help people if they want to set up structures of these natures. Ethical Consumer Magazine is definitely um, a, a link and they have a toolkit, a kind of ethical assessment toolkit. Um, our workers' rights episode is probably a really good one to go back to, including a whole um, section there on how you might join a union and how you might unionise if you're in workplaces that are not yet following these great democratic structures and how you might change that, actually. Um, and again, as always, if anybody is trying to set something like this up or wants to or has, we would love to hear from you. Like, we'd love to hear your comments, your thoughts. What are the barriers? What are the struggles in doing it? And... Um, we are also going to be hearing about cooperatives again in our next episode in terms of housing, like how they apply to a housing structure as well. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because both work and shelter are two things we all, pretty much all of us have to have. So to apply democracy to these two areas, um, yeah, it's a really cool thing to do to sort of see how we might increase these in our daily lives and like Mona said we'd love to hear from you so please um, there's a few ways you can do that there's talk to untelevised at gmail.com which is our email and the two in that is the digit two um, there's our Instagram and Twitters which are at untelevised underscore TV um, do follow us there and you can direct message us you can comment on any of our posts and we try and get back to everyone that does that um, and you can also give us some feedback directly on this podcast so Follow, subscribe, rate and review us where you listen. And that really helps us because it exposes us to more people, the more ratings we have. So if you can do that, we really appreciate it. Um, And as we keep saying, we've got a new website now, which is www.untelevised.co.uk. And there you can find everything. We have articles that um, explore the topics further and give you resource lists that you can check out, like Mona said. Uh, We have all our videos. We have all of our previous podcast episodes. Um, So yeah, do check that out if you want to see more of untelevised i think that's it right mona it is i think it is well i mean there's always more but we'll we'll get back to you in two weeks time okay take care guys bye My ground, my ground is a cloud.